Professor of Divinity in 2010 from Fried Hartman University. Um, Wesley Walker, I didn't really know him to a great deal until a couple years back. Um, when I was in Nashville, I was there for a conference and I knew Wesley preached at the Woodson Chapel Church of Christ, so I figured, well, I'm going to go listen to Wesley preach. So I went and heard him preach, and then he invited me to Five Guys Burger, where every good fellowship meal takes place. Uh, and we were there, and, and it struck me, Wesley Walker is one of those individuals that's easy to talk to, but he's good at everything he does. Um, not in an annoying way. Sometimes you see people like that, and they just are annoyingly good at everything that they do. But Wesley Walker is very humble, but he's also very great at everything that he does. Um, and if you... Uh, get to talking with him. He's a full-time preacher. He carries a full-time secular job. Um, he's the father of three wonderful kids. Uh, he's a fantastic husband to his, his bride. Um, and then he also teaches in our master's program at Bear Valley. And the, the list can go on. Uh, Wesley Walker is one of those who is constantly digging in God's word. And you'll realize that as soon as he starts speaking that this is a very talented individual. God has blessed him greatly. And we're going to be blessed by what he brings us this morning. So uh, in just a few minutes, Wesley, come preach the word. We're going to have Wes Autry uh, give a prayer. And then I was trying to gather up all the Wes's. I couldn't find another Wes, so I had Denny. Um, and he'll lead us in a verse of a song, and then Wesley will bring the word. Let's pray. Our wonderful, glorious Father in heaven, we bow our heads today in praise to you, not knowing the full depth in which we owe you our gratefulness and our love, but appreciating what we can nonetheless. And it is with great honor that we appreciate your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, was buried, and raised again. What a wonderful privilege and honor and humbleness, but what hope you bring to our lives here on this earth, and we thank you for that. And it is in this next lesson that we are going to hear about that through Wesley Walker. We pray that he recalls all of the things that he studied. We pray that we give him full attention so that we can absorb as much of your good word as possible. Watch over us the rest of this day and help us to always see the joy in studying your word and living your word with your people. In Christ we pray, amen. We have been focusing on 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection. Let's sing a song about that. If you want to use the songbook, 220, but it'll be on the slide. First verse only. I serve a risen Savior, he's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus to impart. You ask me, no, he lives, he lives within my heart.
It is good to be with you all this morning. I'm not sure if I could ever live up to the amount of hype Tyler just said the last few minutes ago, but hopefully you'll leave for today knowing more about God and more appreciating the resurrection of Jesus. What a morning so far. You had to pick a, a section of scripture to spend a day meditating on. 1 Corinthians 15 would be hard to beat. In a day in which we gather as saints because we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, what a day to be reminded of the beauty of that resurrection. What a great day to be gathered here with the Bear Valley Church. You know, I was 12 years old. I moved from Latham, Tennessee. You will not find that on any map that is published anywhere in the world, I'm pretty sure. A farming community of 100 people to Denver, Colorado. I look across the room and I see some of you who were there whenever I moved here as a 11 and 12 year old. I made friends who some of them I saw yesterday who attended churches throughout this Denver area they were able to keep in track with. I had two mentors who are still mentors to me today who were at the school and the youth minister here in Hawatha Jones and Byron Benitez and had my time there. Then five years later at the age of 17, I graduated high school and came to Denver a second time. Stayed in the home of Pete and Debbie Hawthorne, somebody many of you probably know and love. Walked every morning up this street to my right here, looking up in the Rocky Mountains on the way to school. Gathered on Sunday morning with the saints here and got to not just love this school, but love this church. It's a privilege to stand before not just those who are attending the school now and former instructors, but so many wonderful members here at, at Bear Valley. As a 17-year-old, I had those two years of foundational study. I've gone to do other things as well, but as one of our speakers this morning mentioned, Bear Valley is the foundation of everything that I've done moving forward. They prepared me to, to be a preacher. They prepared me not just to preach in California, but then in Nashville. They prepared me as I transitioned into doing a dual role because of the needs of my son Emmett, both preaching full-time and working in healthcare sales. They prepared me with a knowledge base and understanding to be able to prepare sermons, maybe more quickly than I'd like to on a weekly area. They made those preparations there, and it's a beautiful thing to be here this morning. Look across this room, I see pretty, a, a lot of familiar faces, folks who I've seen for a long time who've loved me as a child and as I've grown older, who love my children. So many of you ask about all three of my kids and Emmett especially, and it's a great thing to know how much you care. But I also look across a room like this, and I can't help but notice those who aren't here. And they're not here because they couldn't be here this morning because of sickness or something else. They're not here today because they are no longer with us. I think back to the very first people I met in Denver, Colorado, whenever we moved in, Les and Vera Dismaying, who were members at Bear Valley and great servants to the school here. And they sort of introduced me to Denver that day when they moved our family in. And, and there we were with Les. I remember playing with him as a 12-year-old and talking about those things. And they're not here because, because death happens. Look across a room like this today, and some folks who were here two years ago, the last time I was in Denver being able to speak at the lectureship, they are no longer here. A name like Bill Stewart, who had an impact on the school in this congregation, we look out in the room and we realize he's not here, and the encouragement he would bring and the work that he would do for this school. And some of the other ones you can look out in this room, and you can see pews and areas where somebody used to sit, and they are no longer, because death is a reality of the human existence. In fact, on Friday before I entered my aircraft and drove, flew here to Denver, Colorado, I had to leave a funeral home where I conducted a funeral for a mother with three children 
who had passed from this world to the next, had to mourn with the family there in that time of death and had to speak with them about the comfort that God can provide and use those words that oftentimes preachers have to use in the midst of mourning and suffering to try to comfort in those particular times because death is a reality. 3.4 million people died in the United States last year. Multiply that by many times over worldwide and you realize that death is something we, we deal with. And maybe in the last sort of 18 or 19 months, we've dealt with death in a way that we haven't had to confront it before because all of a sudden death is talked about a whole lot more in our society than it was before. All of a sudden people care about death a lot more. There for a while, any news station you turned on had a tracker in the corner that would tell you how many people died of COVID, right? You saw that tracker and it was 100,000, 200,000, 300,000. All of a sudden, they had this huge number of deaths constantly before. So you had announcements at church like we had of this person suffering and dying and that person suffering and dying or a friend or a relative. And you begin to realize the, the reality of, of death. We don't like that reality a whole lot. We try to hide it in some way. We try to, to shield it away to some degree. Our modern society sort of hides death from us. A lot of things that we do, like those who are elderly, we, we put aside for a little while. It's not the same as it used to be where you might have a loved one in your home and you'd watch them slowly and just to be honest about slowly die. You'd have that connection. You'd have that reality of death. We, we sort of push death aside. In fact, we spend a whole lot of money not to die or at least look like we're not dying. The millions upon millions and even billions of dollars that are spent for things like trying to advance your age or, or health care needs or beyond that, even things like making sure you don't look like you're old because in our mind the idea of aging is connected with death. So let's get rid of wrinkles and this thing or that thing and do all we can to, to sort of reverse time so we can look youthful and therefore have to realize that we are mortal beings that one day will die. If you jump back 200 years ago, really from 200 years ago to the beginning of human existence, death was a lot truer reality to them than it is to us today. We understand you can die at any moment, but for them, they understood there was always something out there that could kill you. Things you could see and things you could not see. The idea of a, of a disease running through a society and killing a large portion of people was not uncommon for them. In fact, for us, it's such a, a different feeling because we're not used to the idea of, of not being able to take care of it quickly and eradicate. We're not used to that. And so we're not used to this concept of being fearful of, of just dying from things you can't see. But death's a, a reality. In fact, over the last few years, I've watched those that I care about, not related to our current crisis we have, but those I care about, die of things I would have never thought of. I had an uncle who was 42 years old, my closest uncle I had, my baseball coach when I was growing up, who all of a sudden was diagnosed with geoplastoma after having a headache for a few days, and within about a year passed away from that disease. His wife, who was my wife's Amanda's closest friend in my family, was then diagnosed with breast cancer, and she passed away about a year ago. Two individuals in their early 40s, which early 40s seemed ancient to me 20 years ago, and now it seems like it's coming around the corner here at any moment. Gone, and you realize the reality of death. The Hebrew writer speaks of the slavery of the fear of death that all of humanity is captured in before the coming of Jesus. That all of us are sort of fearful enslavement of the fact that we are going to die and the great unknown after death enslaves us and helps us and keeps us from really living our lives because there's this fear of what's going to happen. Death is a reality. 
It's a sad matter to think about because nobody wants to talk about death and nobody wants to think about their own mortality or think about those they might care about, but death is always around us. As much as we try to slow it down and push it aside, we might say that death is, is, is undefeated. I look across this room and 10 years from now, if I'm back here, or 20 years from now, you or I might, not, might no longer be able to gather in a room like this because death happens. That's why 1 Corinthians 15 is such a powerful section of Scripture because the Apostle Paul, who understands the slavery humanity has to death, that the, the fear of death that enslaves us has to be conquered in order for us to really overcome the final enemy, that death is not this friend, not this thing that we should we, we embrace, but death is something that seems outside of our nature because to some degree it is because that was not God's design. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spends this chapter to speak about the, the reality of Jesus' ability to conquer death. He's writing to a church that has all these disunity problems, all of these issues, and basically says you've got to get at least this one thing right. You've got to understand if you want to have hope in this world or reason even to be a Christian that you have to agree upon the fact that there is a resurrection once this life is over with. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul lays out sort of his case for both the resurrection of Jesus, but more importantly, how that resurrection relates to the fact that you and I one day will conquer death as well. There's coming a day when the, the tombs that we see, the graves that we find will be emptied. And the beauty of that truth that God can in fact conquer death. When we say goodbye to a loved one, we know it's not forever, that God can open up a tomb and bring them back to life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul begins over the first five verses basically saying, this is of the utmost importance. What I received from the Lord, I have passed down to you this divine tradition regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says simply this, the gospel is this message about Christ, Jesus who died according to scripture, who was buried and who was raised according to scripture, this very foundational truth of the Christian faith. In fact, if you don't believe in that, Paul would say, what are you doing here? Go to the Broncos game and tailgate. Go, go somewhere else and have a good time because what's the point of all this if there's no resurrection of the dead? She begins by saying the gospel, which is this foundational message of Christian truth, teaches us that Jesus died, was buried, and the beautiful part there, he was raised. And it'll make sure the readers know it's not of some outside appointment, but of first importance. It's the, it's the main thing. In fact, if you kind of walk through Christianity and get that part wrong, the death, burial, and resurrection, you don't really have Christianity. And Paul continues by going on there in 1 Corinthians 15 and saying, let's play some games here. Let's, let's talk about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let's say just for a moment you take off one piece of that and you remove from that the resurrection. What does that mean exactly if we no longer have a resurrection from the dead. And as Wes Altry spoke this morning, you have this, this spiraling out of control of a life that's built around fraud and therefore is, is worthless. There in the verse 12 through verse 19, when Paul plays this game, really it's a, an ancient rhetorical device where you make an argument based off of what if it's not true, and then an argument based on what it is true. And he says, what if it's not true? Then there's so many things about our faith that don't make any sense. 
If Christ isn't raised, we're still dead in our sins, he says. And therefore, uh, there's an issue with that if there's no resurrection of the dead because Jesus isn't raised. Or he speaks about the worthlessness of preaching if there's no resurrection of the dead. And the apostles, they're, they're liars if there's no resurrection from the dead. And over and over again, he lays out the case of why the resurrection matters. Because if there isn't one, we of all people are to be most pitied. He kind of hit that last verse where he comes to his punchline. He says, if you were to think about a world with no resurrection from the dead, then, then if everybody in the world, all the different divisions we have and groups we have, those who proclaim Christianity should be pitied by the world because we gave our life to something that was all fraud and was worthless. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wants to lay out this case for the resurrection because he wants these readers to realize that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, it's not something you can throw aside. It's something that you need. It's something that's essential. And in fact, he wants to make the case that if death is still the reigning enemy, if death is still the thing that's not yet been conquered and the kingdom of God cannot fully come because there's still an enemy we're subjected to, so God has to conquer death for us really to see the fullness of his kingdom. So he lays out his case of the essential nature of the gospel and the gospel being about Christ's resurrection there at the very end. And then he lays out the case of if there is no resurrection, the, the terribleness of that reality. And then he stops and says, but let's talk more positively. If you have your Bibles, go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. My text this morning goes from verse 20 down to verse 29, where there uh, the Apostle Paul is going to lay out the, the positive case for the resurrection, why this is so important. It's somewhat shocking to me that he has to write Christians to tell them what's so important about the resurrection until I begin to read even modern Christian literature and realize there are Christians who deny things like a, a bodily resurrection or a true resurrection and realize we, we struggle sometimes with the basics. And Paul wants us to see here in verses 20 down through verse 29 that when you think about the resurrection, you are seeing God do something that's not just a peripheral thing but is most important to our faith. In fact, I stand up here with hope this morning of a life beyond death because I believe in a resurrected Lord and my own resurrection. And Paul there says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, basically starts out by saying, let me prove to you the resurrection. The proof is simply this. Jesus was raised. You know, Paul's starting point for his entire argument here in the second half of 1 Corinthians is a belief in the resurrection of Jesus, that he was in fact raised from the dead. And he makes his argument there in verse 6 by saying, we have eyewitnesses to this resurrection. He lays out his case, right? You have Paul, and you have Cephas, and you have the 500, and you have those like James, and all these individuals who are able to see the resurrected Lord. In fact, Paul could say, I had an encounter with him on the road to Damascus. I saw Jesus raised. The early Christian preaching there in the book of Acts was not a message about an empty tomb exclusively or about the death of Christ, but their message was we saw him die, we saw a tomb, and then we saw him walk around amongst us. He was raised from the dead. He interacted with the world around him. So Peter and Paul and somebody like the 500 who we wish we could have been a part of that are able there to give testimony to the fact that Jesus was raised in fact, Paul writes there in somewhat of a way to challenge his point. He says, some of them are still alive. So basically, look it up. You can find these ones. They can tell you they saw the resurrected Lord. 
We know some of those occurrences, right? There in the Gospel of John where you get the apostles and you get Thomas later on and the interaction with their, their eating of food and the touching of the body and the, and the scars that are still there. And you have all these thoughts about what the resurrection looks like. But here is Jesus raised from the dead. Paul will make the case that Jesus is raised. And that's foundational to his belief in our resurrection. Because Paul stops and says when Jesus was raised, he was raised not as a one-time and the only time, but as a first fruit. Now, first fruit might not be something you're as familiar with. There's this Hebrew Bible connotation, and when it came time to sort of harvest, you, you took the beginning point of your harvest, and you gave it to God with the belief being that that was not going to be the complete harvest, right? You'd have a beginning harvest and then a future harvest. When I grew up in West Tennessee, in that small town of Latham, the big competition was who would have the first ripe Tomato, and uh, you probably heard this before because it comes up often in my preaching. I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of tomatoes. They taste terrible unless they're on pizza or like spaghetti sauce. But for some reason, my dad felt that we needed 200 tomato plants. And so every year I had to plant a lot of tomatoes. And the competition was who could have the first ripe one. And at church, you'd have that basket out there where people would bring their produce. And you'd always see the person who bought the first ripe one and drop it in there like it was like you know, the, the greatest reward of all time. Here it is. I, I accomplished the first fruit here. Our dad would send us out, thus three boys, go check to see if the tomatoes are ripe. Because you wanted that first one to, to sort of prove your harvest. Here it is. We grew it. It's here. We're going to have a lot more after this. When Paul was speaking of the resurrection, he used that same idea that Jesus here is the first one, but not the only one, that God is creating this first fruit where he's saying, we're going to start with Jesus, but that's not the end of God's harvest. Paul wants to begin by letting us know that when we talk about the resurrection, the proof is Jesus is raised. But he doesn't stop there because the proof points to a promise. That if Jesus is raised from the dead, then you and I will also be raised. I read a, um, a joke the other day that said, once you turn 35, or once you're a dad who turns 35, you have two options in life. Become really, really devoted to smoking meat and barbecuing, or to World War II facts. I turned 35 last year, and I've always been an overachiever, so I've become devoted to both of those things in my life here. In fact, uh, Emmett, it gets in trouble sometimes. He'll say things like at church, Dad, what are we smoking today? And I was like, buddy, we got to give some context here to what you're saying. Uh, because not everybody understands when you say, what are we smoking, that we're talking about beef and pork. Uh, and so we always have to be careful. Like, we're smoking, buddy, but smoking meat. Throw meat in there at the end of your, of your question there. But also like reading about World War II. And so you think about World War II for just a moment. I think the illustration will make sense to you. In World War II, when we get to the point to where it was pretty clear we were going to defeat the Germans. You had the Russians on the Eastern Front who were pushing back. The German army could not face a two-pronged war. Patton had come up through Italy, sort of made a beachhead there. But we knew we needed one more beachhead to finish off the invasion and eventually topple the Third Reich. We know that invasion is the Battle of Normandy, Right. We had an individual at church when I was at Woodson Chapel who passed about three years ago who was both at the Battle of Normandy and the Battle of the Bulge that took place a little while after that. It was amazing to sit and just be there with somebody who you read about. He would, most of those men were very humble about their experience, but you go through and see books where he'd have this stuff here with pictures of, of what took place and him going back to those locations. I had that opportunity to be there. 
But it was very important to have a beachhead. Their, their view was that we can simply establish a place in the, in the western front so we can unload the, 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 the amount of military equipment we need. We'll be able to push through the rest of the German fight and go to Berlin. And they were right. The beachhead took a lot, and there was a lot of work there. But once they had it, the war, although there was a lot of deaths and a lot of casualties, the war, for all intents and purposes, was mainly over in terms of who was going to win. The question was, how many people would die until Germany said, we can't handle this anymore? The beachhead made it to where the reality had changed, and you knew who was going to win. And the resurrection of Jesus as a first fruit or a beachhead changed the whole reality of what life is like because now you know who's going to win. You've had the first resurrection and therefore a promise of future resurrection, so you know you're going to be able to conquer death. In fact, Paul will make his point here in the next few verses where he talks about sort of two realities, one brought in by the first man, Adam. That Adam becomes the first man, and Adam sins against God, and because of that sin, he's kicked out of the garden, he's removed from the tree of life, and death becomes our reality. We will eventually get old and die without the benefit of being able to go to that tree for the healing of us, and for all those wounds, we were, we were all going to die. And before we sort of overly get mad at Adam, it's not like you and I didn't follow his same pattern. You know, my mom would say things like, if your friend jumped off a bridge, would you, whenever I did something dumb because my friend did it? And I always would say, you know, I wouldn't. But then I thought back in my mind, I thought, well, all humanity did. Adam jumped off the bridge in rebellion against God. And we said, that sounded great. Let's all do that as well. And we had this rebellion that leads us to die. And so death is our, our reality, not because God made it that way. God doesn't desire death. He created us to be immortal in the garden there with the tree of life. But death becomes our reality. And all of a sudden, the Old Testament you have, and so-and-so lived, and he died. And so-and-so lived to this age, and he died with his emphasis of death over and over and over again, reminding us that death is now a part of the world that we live in. Death happens. And so Paul says, Adam brought in the beachhead of death, in which that becomes the conquering force that each one of us cannot win, no matter how much money we spend or how, try we, how hard we try, we're going to die. But then Jesus comes along, and Paul loves to make this comparison in his writings between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, sort of the, the last representative man here. And with Jesus, he says, Jesus comes along and becomes a man who conquers death. And therefore, all of a sudden, we're invited into a new reality, not the reality of Adam that says, you're going to die and that's it, but the reality of Jesus that says, you're going to die, but all of a sudden, you're going to have resurrection, that's why Paul in the book of 1 Timothy can say Jesus brought about immortality, this new reality of life, that there's a life beyond this, there's a resurrection beyond this life in its fullness in that way. There's this reversal that takes place. And this reversal means that Paul can say in the midst of this section here, this beautiful phrase in a very matter-of-fact way, we will be made alive. The promise of the resurrection is that one day God will make us alive once again, that we will not stay dead. You know, I think about death and the reality of death and the numerous times that I've been at funerals and tasted death there. You, you realize that's just how powerful something like that is, that God is going to make us alive. When I was a young boy in West Tennessee, Growing up, we went to funerals, and so I kind of had that same pattern with my kids. And, you know, Emmett at two years old, one of the first sort of phrases he learned as he went to a funeral was, 
you know, sorry for your loss. He didn't know what it meant, but we, we understood the reality of, of death. My kids have been at funerals, and they know that their life has an ending. It kind of scares me sometimes, because Emmett knows now about things. He's five now, so he knows about things like dying. And somewhere along the way, he learned about inheritances. And so he says things to me like, Dad, when you're fully dead, and I'm like, well, that's a weird phrase, buddy, but Dad, when you're fully dead, can I have all your money? And I'm like, well... Sure, bud, but let's hope it's a long way down the road here. But he's already got in his mind that there comes a point where he's fully dead, and somebody tells him when someone dies, there's an inheritance at the end. When you hear the words, be made alive, it's a simple phrase there, but that's Paul's trying to get across for us. This is a, a promise of the conquering of the last enemy. In fact, the significance of this cannot be lost or underplayed. How significant is it the fact that, that one day we will be made alive? Well, Paul was saying in 1 Thessalonians that the fact that we're made alive again gives us hope in the midst of mourning. The fact that one day those who are dead in Christ will raise from the grave means that we do not sorrow like those who have no hope because one day there will be a grand reunion because we will be made alive alive. What a beautiful idea that is. And what a way to comfort a family or a loved one or even yourself to know that that is not the end. There is something beyond this. All because there in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, because of the resurrection, you will be made alive. Yeah. Or you read Romans chapter 8, where Paul there will speak about the entire creation groaning for that resurrection day, waiting for the day where it will be made new and our own bodies growing for the per moment in time where it will be made new. And you get to verse 23 where Paul there speaks the fact that our bodies are waiting for the resurrection because we know this is not, this is not the reality that God wanted us to be. In fact, all of our hope to not die, all the money we spend on, on medicines and technologies, all the things we spend on, on not looking our age to, to make us look younger, all that money spent is really a, sort of an internal thing within us that realizes I was not meant to die. Yeah, we are in the sense of in this world, but as in terms of our created initial being, we were not meant to experience death. We were meant to live forever. So our body groans for that reality. And sometimes those groan, as Wes Autry mentioned, his age and his body not functioning the way it always supposed to. Sometimes those groans are when you get up in the morning and you wake up and you move around and you realize, I can't do that anymore. So I'm a, I'm a runner, and so I've been running quite a bit the last year and a half, and I decided I need to, to add some weightlifting uh, to my running. So I haven't weightlifted since I played football, and so I thought I'm just going to go and do a, a football workout. I'm 36. My last football workout was 18. That's a big, big gap there. So I went out into the gym and didn't stretch because, hey, I'm still young in my mind. I won't stretch. I'll do this. Did my workout, had Wednesday night class that night, and was struggling to walk up our three steps to go stand before the audience and deliver my lesson. And I'm normally the guy who moves, but that Wednesday night I was the guy who stood on the podium with both hands, hoping I wouldn't fall over, because every time I moved there was an ache or a pain. And I realized the body was groaning in that sense. When you think about the resurrection of Jesus, you think about the fact that one day the, the body that we have, that, that's, that's sort of this body that's not what it should be, is going to be made complete. In fact, that's kind of the point Paul will make in this last half of 1 Corinthians 15. I think this afternoon somebody will cover this. But that this idea of a body that's sowed in, in incorruptibility and sowed in mortality and sowed in perishableness will now grow up and be, be resurrected as a body of immortality, of imperishableness. All these things that, 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 that are a reality of our life will no longer take place in the resurrected body. 
To them about the significance of the resurrection, it gives us hope in the midst of, of life's crisis. It gives us the, the knowing that, that one day this body will be glorified. Whatever that's going to look like, God will raise us from the dead and remove the groanings of a creation, not just our own bodies, but all creation that's waiting for the day when God will keep that promise. We have that hope of something better. But we also have in 1 Corinthians 15 this hope of a new reality. For that new body. You know, the resurrection's important. And I guess, you know, kind of looking back, God could do a lot of different things with regards to what eternity looks like if He wanted to, but God has chosen to raise our bodies from the grave. Whatever you put in the ground or, or wherever you spread your ashes, whatever it might be, God has chosen to take that and raise it up and then from that body create a body made by the Spirit. I think I mentioned this yesterday. The word spirit or spiritual bodies there is not the idea of an, an immaterial body floating around, but that which is crafted by the Spirit of God itself, glorified in such a way that the Spirit makes this new body because God has a new reality for us to live in. Paul says flesh and blood, sort of his idiom for the current state, cannot exist in the fullness of what God's kingdom is doing in the, perp in the future. So therefore, we have to be changed. Whether that's through the resurrection or through a twinkling of an eye when Christ returned, there's got to be this changing of our bodies to a fit in a new reality. God's prepared for us a new heaven and new earth with all the beauty of that. And for us to fully enjoy that new heaven and new earth with no pain, no sickness, no disease that is unfading, that lasts forever to take from Peter and from the book of Revelation, we're to truly enjoy that. We have to have a new body. A body without sickness or disease, or death, or pain. I think we all can relate to not wanting to worry about those things. If you have any age on you whatsoever, and a few of you have a lot of age on you out there in the audience, you know that suffering is a part of life. And you've seen people that you care about suffer. You've seen sickness take the life of somebody that you love. You've seen disease take those things. You've seen this pain in life, and you, you long for that next day. You long for that resurrection day. Some of you know me, know I have a son named Emmett. A lot of you ask about Emmett. He is one of the more famous five-year-olds in the country. Everybody I go, they ask, how's Emmett doing? If you don't know Emmett, Emmett was born uh, and immediately, well, actually a month before he was born, my wife was placed in the hospital because of Emmett. Emmett was born, had a surgery on day two of his life, had a diagnosis of cystic fibrosis, had another surgery because his liver was not functioning correctly. We thought he wasn't going to make it past six months. He had some very serious conditions there. And he has a disease called cystic fibrosis. If he was here today, you wouldn't see that. It's a genetic disease. But every morning, Emmett has to wake up before everybody else does, and go through a breathing treatment every day of his life. And every night when everybody else goes to bed, Emmett does his breathing treatment as well. He does his uterol, his treatment, and those are an hour each. And every time Emmett eats, he knows he has to have certain pills. In fact, he, has to, he knows how many he has to have because he has to have those to, to function, to digest his food. That's his, that's his reality. You know, my girls love doing sleepovers and going over to their friend's house. And all in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, what's that going to look like for Emmett? He has to you know, drag around the stuff there, the different things that go along in life. And when he was first born, I remember sitting in a hospital room wondering if I'd get to experience anything you know, with my son, which made uh, three weeks ago kind of the, a great moment in the life of, of my life whenever Emmett and I 
walked on a baseball field, me as his coach, him playing baseball, and him just being so excited on how much he loved baseball. He looked like a big leaguer, he said, as he was out there. But I knew that morning, before him went to the baseball field, we had to stop what he was doing and make sure he had a treatment. And about halfway through the game, I noticed Emmett was taking deeper breaths than the other kids because there's still some times where his lungs don't quite flow up like they need to. And I thought to myself, what a beauty that resurrected body and the resurrected way, new world is going to be like. To where someone like my son is able to enjoy life with the full breath. Not have to be delayed because of a treatment to make sure he can do this or that thing, but able to enjoy life to its fullest without the limitations that might be there because of this treatment or that treatment. And you stop for a moment and you realize the importance of what Paul's saying here. And how it impacts our daily life to have that hope that one day that, that, that our bodies will not be this way, that God is doing something better and giving us a new body and a new way for a new reality. That's what God has in store for us. So when Paul says, we will be made alive, don't look at that weekly understand the impact of a statement like that, that we, children of God, will one day be made alive in a reality where we don't have to worry about sorrow and death and disease. We get to experience life as God intended it, and this new Eden God has in store for us. We get that. Amen. So Paul laid out and talked about the proof that if Jesus is raised, he was raised as a first fruit, and therefore all of us will be raised. We will be made alive. Then he ends by saying, but there's a point in time when this will happen. The reality of the world we live in is we both know that conquering death is going to happen. In fact, I assume if you're here this morning and you stayed for a Bible class from a guy that you've never met before, at least some of you, that you probably believe that there's coming a day when there's going to be a, a resurrection. But you also know life is not what it will be like in the future. There's this tension throughout Scripture, this concept of, of God's reign in our world, and we see God's reign in the person of Jesus and the church that follows after him, but also this sense in which we're not yet what we should be, that the, the fullness has not yet been experienced. And in fact, Paul plays off that tension in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there in the last few verses of our section in verse 25 and following, where he talks about this particular issue that they're going to have in Corinth of, of waiting for the day when the final enemy is destroyed. Waiting for the day when, when death, the final enemy of God, is, is done away with. It's sort of a symbol of this is whenever everything is subjected to Christ, and therefore we're going to see the fullness of God's kingdom. The prayer that I hope we pray often is going to be fulfilled in that moment, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We will see that take place, but not until the last enemy is destroyed. See, Paul here is trying to once again show the importance of our resurrection by saying, if we are not raised from the dead, then there's not going to be a final victory, that this idea of the fullness of God's kingdom will never come along if we're not raised. So he makes this point about the time. And oftentimes when Paul makes points about the end of the world, he likes to do it in sort of a, a sequence. This happens, then this, then this, and then finally this thing will take place. Like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he talks about the, the, the trumpet will sound, Jesus will appear, the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain. You can go to this picture of, of this beautiful chaos where God is making all these things work out in this brief moment in time. But Paul likes to have his thing sort of sequentially here. So in Paul's grand sequence, he says, we had the beginning point of death, Adam. 
That's a long time ago to think about a beginning point. And that reality has been our human reality ever since then, right? I go to way too many funerals. I see way too many people die because that's our human reality. But then Paul says, in the midst of this human reality of death and death and death and death and generations because one passed away and a new one comes along, you have this second point. Then, after Adam, came Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And for Paul, that's sort of the, the breaking in of a new reality in human existence that now death is not the final answer. There's something beyond this grave and Jesus has proven it once for all. And then he says, once that happens, you and I will be raised. We don't know when that's going to happen. That could be as far in front of us as Adam is behind us for all we know, but eventually it'll come about that one day you and I will be raised. And then he says, the end of death will come and the new kingdom will arrive. See, the conquering of death is not just really something that's a, that, that, that has to happen because it makes sense, but in the sense of this is when God shows his final ability to subject every enemy to Jesus. And one of the things we struggle with is people of faith, and go back to the reading of, your, of the Psalms and the laments of the Old Testament, is the reality of the fact that we serve a good God who cares for us and loves us, but we live in a world that doesn't often show that, right? You, you go to God and say, God, this doesn't seem fair. Like Job, you will say, God, answer us. Figure this out for us. We maintain our faith, and we struggle with that, and we have those moments of darkness where we're asking God, figure this stuff out, because it doesn't make sense that these things are happening. And that's because the final enemy has not yet been conquered. In fact, the text says every enemy is in place under the footstool of Jesus except for death. But eventually death will give up its bodies. And when that happens, Christ will rule all in all. And turn the kingdom over to the Father and we will see the fullness of what God has in store. We will see what Paul promised in the book of Romans when he says, I am convinced that, that the present issues of this day are nothing compared to the glory and grace to be shown in the future. We will see what God had in store. And in that, we'll also see those who've gone before. I always wonder what that reunion's going to be like on that final day, right? When we are there and resurrected, will you have kind of a meet and greet with those who've gone before and will you see them right away we have to walk through the jerusalem street of gold and you know knock on whose room and might figure out who's there i mean what does how does that work but i'm confident in this that i'm gonna look out in a room one day and i'm not gonna say you know back there that's where that's where they sit and they're not they're not there anymore I'm going to walk out of a funeral and say, that body that I saw is not the last time I'm going to see them. Or I'm going to step beside a, a gravestone and when I'm thinking about a loved one who's gone before and say, I'm going to get to speak with them again because death is going to give up its bodies. There's going to be a resurrection. And that, because of that, we're going to have hope. Not just in the future, but now. Right before Emmett was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, we had a, my uncle diagnosed with the brain disease. Our associate minister's wife was diagnosed with ALS, and she passed about a year after. And one of our key members of our church, one of the guys who sort of stands in the back and greets, worked for the Tennessee Department of, of Transportation, 
semi-truck driver was texting on his phone, swerved off the road, hit him and killed him immediately. I did the funeral, and it was one of the most powerful funerals because as we left the Woodson Chapel building completely packed, we turned the corner to go about a mile up the road to the graveyard and lining the side of the streets on both sides were individual in T-dot uniforms with their helmets off, standing in attention as we drove by. And we got to the actual funeral site, and the man was upper 50s. His, both his daughters, his grandkids, all went to Woodson Chapel. We laid the body in the grave. We are actually involved as part of the family tradition of putting the dirt into the ground as part of our, their tradition there. And in the back of the audience, the family begins to sing hymns. How much they love Jesus. That he is Lord. And as, we're, as a group sort of putting the dirt on the body and the family's coming up, they're all singing and crying because they stood there with hope. They believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that since Jesus was raised, their loved one would be raised as well. And that meant something to them in the future, but it also meant something to them right then. In fact, Paul will end this section in 1 Corinthians 15 with a, an exhortation. He says, therefore, be ever abounding in this good works, because if the resurrection is true, that motivates everything else in our life. And we stand here today in a room on a Sunday, having heard at least three messages now on the resurrection of Jesus, because that's how much it's worthwhile. Because resurrection is not a thing that might happen, but a thing that did happen. And our resurrection is not some afterthought in the Christian experience. It's the very central thing to our lives, that one day we will be raised. The proof is he raised Jesus from the dead. The promise is you will be made alive. And that point in time is whenever God ends this world to usher in the world to come, we see the fullness of his kingdom. And that's when we can say what Paul says at the end of chapter 15. O death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, but thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. When you gather around a tomb, a people that you love, you don't want to hear modern philosophy of death, the natural thing. You want to know that the body you lay in the grave, that is not their final resting place but that God will raise them from the dead to a better reality. And that's our hope, that God will one day raise us from the dead. And we live our lives in a way that the world looks at as foolish because we have this promise. We will be made alive.